<clears throat> now, first of all, we're we're uh, starting as of uh, Sunday to uh, to put together supplies. Initially, supplies related to school, uh, back to school items that are needed for. Uh, in Ukraine, and we'll be shipping those on July the 6th. There's a list in the fellowship hall, so you can see what's needed for that. Uh, also, uh, a week from this Saturday, we'll have our men's prayer breakfast. Um, on June the 22nd is the next time we have to provide food for the Robinson family, so check out in the fellowship hall for that schedule as well. Then just a reminder... I know that I'll have to say this all the time because not only do y'all need to remember it, but I do too, that we have the, uh, we're, we're involved in uh, this referendum, this petition to have a referendum on the so-called HERO Act, the uh, Equal Rights Ordinance, the Houston Equal Rights, Rights Ordinance uh, that was passed by the Houston City Council. Now, in order to, uh, sign the petition. You need to be able to put your voter certificate number on the petition. You don't? According to this sheet, which is the sign-up sheet, the first box is voter certificate number. You don't need it. Does it say that? Okay. All, all I know is it has a column for it on the list. But you're supposed to be a resident and voting. A, a you're supposed to be a, a registered to vote in the city of Houston and qualified to vote in the for city council or the mayoral election. So I know some of you live in Katy or Sugarland or Tomball or wherever in the county. So you don't you're not qualified to sign. But um, we've got those out and we'll get those uh, notarized and then turn those in before. Uh, the sign, but it's got to be done by about the 25th or 26th. I forget the exact date. Whatever last 31:30, 28th was when they voted. So it has to be into the city council, uh, probably earlier than uh, the 28th. It's got to it's got to be in within 30 days. And then we sent out information email on that as well, so you can go to their website, which is www.no unequal rights, just one word, no unequal rights.com is the website that has all of the information uh, on it. They've done a good job with all, providing all the information needed for that. I think that's it. All right, before we get started, we'll have uh, a few moments of silent prayer so that you can make sure that you are ready to focus and study this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to reflect upon your word and think through your plan and purposes in history. Fathers, we come to understand that you do not deal with every uh, era, every age, every dispensation the same. We pray that we can uh, understand how you make these distinctions and why. And as we go through the scriptures, we get a review or overview of all of the Bible, and this helps just to reinforce in our minds uh, the scope, the framework, uh, the purpose of your revelation. 
And we pray that as we think about these things, it's not just an academic exercise, but one which has tremendous value for us as we seek to read and understand the Bible for ourselves. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we'll start off with just a quick review, charts that are becoming uh, familiar to you, and it should be embedded in your thinking. The um, One of the distinctions in the philosophy of ministry that I hold to in the pulpit is that, um, you know, in contrast to what's normally taught in seminaries, is that you teach things in kind of a memorable fashion, but you don't repeat things too much because you don't want people to get bored or turn you out, uh, turn you off. So you just want to teach in a memorable way. And there's a vast difference between teaching in a memorable way and teaching a way that people can't forget. And the way to teach people so they can't forget is to just go over it and over it in different ways so that it gets embedded, sometimes the same way, sometimes differently. You don't want to always say it the same way because then people, you know, it becomes white noise. But some things, especially the vi- certain visuals, are critical to just helping us understand and conceptualize uh, what's happening in terms of... Uh, in terms of scripture and revelation and theology. So we have this chart showing that uh, three categories here, the initial Gentile covenants, which in my understanding are basically the same covenant with modifications, the original creation covenant until the fall. Then it's modified because of sin. We have the Adamic covenant, uh, Genesis three fourteen to 19, and that has to be modified after God judges the world again because of its evil at the worldwide flood. And that, at the conclusion of the flood, God gives a new covenant to Noah. There are certain features that are similar in each of these covenants but get modified each time as we, as we saw when we studied them. We're still under the Noahic covenant, which, which still means that capital punishment's authorized. God's not going to destroy the world by uh, water again. And every time you see a rainbow, that is a reminder of that covenant. And we are to, we are authorized to eat, uh, eat animal flesh, whether it's fish, fowl, or, or meat. Uh, the Jewish covenants began after the failure of the Tower of Babylon. God called out Abraham, gave him a covenant that combined three elements, promised him a specific piece of land that his descendants would be, uh, innumerable, and that he would, uh, it was through them that they would be, provide a worldwide blessing. Each of those elements of land, seed, and blessing are expanded in the land covenant or the real estate covenant of Deuteronomy 30, the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7, and the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. Now, so far what we've done in our study is we've looked at uh, the initial covenants as they each covenant in, introduced a new dispensation <clears throat> up to the Mosaic covenant. Uh, after that, you don't have the church age doesn't really begin with the new covenant. Uh, the millennial kingdom will begin when the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant all come into effect at the same time. They're given in the Old Testament, but they are not uh, inaugurated, and that's an important word to understand. It's they're not inaugurated until... Uh, the second coming of Christ. So we anticipate those covenants, and we'll get into those covenants uh, tonight.
we broke down history in a broad sense with cate- with, with large uh, uh, ages, the age of the Gentiles from creation to the Tower of Babel, technically the call of Abraham, then the age of Israel from Abraham to the cross, but then the last seven years are postponed to the uh, tribulation, and we'll talk about that when we get there. Then we have the current church age, which ends with the rapture of the church, and then you have the last seven years of Israel, which is the tribulation, and then the Lord returns at the second coming, establishing the uh, millennial kingdom, the messianic age, and then we go into eternity future with the new heavens and the new earth. Each of those ages is further subdivided for the most part into uh, uh, subsequent um, uh, or, or, or is subdivided into dispensations. I ended up last time talking about the five cycles of discipline that uh, are outlined for Israel as part of the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is a, a kind of covenant that are, are modeled after the kind of covenant uh, that was used in the ancient world. I argue that the original covenant that God made with man becomes the uh, archetype of all covenants. When you say, what, who came first, God or man? God came first. God gives a covenant to man. That becomes a pattern by which man then de- develops his concept of covenants. Law originated with God, and man learns the concept of law and contract from, from God. One kind of covenant that existed in the ancient world, there were two kinds of covenants, actually. There's a royal grant covenant, which was a free gift that was made by a, a king or overlord to a loyal subject. And he gives him freely uh, land or certain responsibilities or certain domains. The Abrahamic covenant is patterned, over, patterned after a royal grant treaty. The second kind of treaty was one that is technically called a suzerain vassal treaty. The suzerain would be the overlord, uh, the great king. When a king would uh, capture a territory, then he would uh, enter into a treaty with the ruler of that uh, smaller territory who would become a vassal. We would call it a client nation who would become a vassal to the great king and the the king would outline in this in this covenant his past history, what he had done to aid and help the vassal, and what the vassal's responsibilities were to the great king. And then at the end of the document, he would spell out what the consequences would be if the vassal uh, violated the contract. And if the vassal was faithful and obedient, then there would be promised rewards uh, from the suzerain for uh, good behavior and for backing the suzerain. So this is uh, uh, the Mosaic law fits that pattern. Deuteronomy fits it to a T. There's like five different elements that you have in a suzerain vassal treaty, and that's the outline for uh, basically for the book of, of uh, Deuteronomy. And the Mosaic law follows that pattern with the conclusion of the uh, curse, the blessings and the curses. And the blessings are identified in Leviticus 26, 1 to 13, and 14 to 46 outline these five stages of discipline. I went through them last time, and I just, uh, just putting this up on the board, each one gets increasingly worse. They're all related to the economy of the people in the land, 
And since it's an agrarian economy, many of the curses are related to agriculture, which in turn means uh, if there's failure, if there's a curse, uh, judgment on the land, then it's going to impact economy, impact the crops, impact um, these things. So you have the first cycle of discipline. And part of the first cycle of discipline is they become militarily weak and are defeated by their enemies. Now, these cycles of discipline are for Israel. They're not for anyone else because not one single thing in the Mosaic Law applies to anybody but an Israelite because that's a covenant. Otherwise, you're going over and it's like reading your next-door neighbor's mail. There may be a lot of similarities between your credit card bills and your neighbor's credit card bills, but you don't go over to your credit card bill and say, oh, that applies to me. Nothing applies. Don't pervert the word application. Not one thing applies. There may be implications. There may be parallels, but not one thing applies. That's a horrible way to use that word. Uh, We have to be more precise with it. We use it to mean anything under the sun, and that's, that's not right. Um, there may be similarities, but the reason they're not the same is because God didn't give France to the French. God didn't give Italy to the Italians. There's no contract. God didn't give England to the Brits. Now, those people may not like it, but he didn't. There's no contract. God didn't give North America to the, to the Americans. There's no contract. So there's nothing that applies. God only entered into a one-on-one contract with one people, and that's Israel. No one else, period. You can't substantiate it at all biblically. Now, So there may be similarities in ways that nations collapse in terms of the cycles of, of civilization and the rise and fall of civilizations, but they're not the same because these penalties, if you read the text of Leviticus 26 are all ultimately all related to God saying, I promise you the land. If you're obedient, it's going to be wonderful, and you're going to live in the land and enjoy its bounty. But if you're disobedient, I'm going to take you out of the land. And so it's all related to those uh, Abrahamic promises. The reason I'm going over this this, morning, uh, this evening is I just wanted to focus on one thing I commented on last week. I got an email uh, this morning came in from uh, Pat McDonald related to this uh, second point under the third cycle of discipline. I make, I make this point every time I teach this, that God promised that if the Israelites were obedient to him, that he would remove the ravenous wild beasts from the land. Now, if you've got an agricultural uh, economy, you don't want... Lions and tigers and bears coming in and taking out all your sheep and your goats and and uh, threatening your children and everything else. And so God said, if you're spiritually obedient, these animals will disappear. If you're disobedient, these animals will show up. Now you can't chart that on a graph. You can't draw. You can't go into the laboratory and draw a cause and effect relationship between spiritual obedience and disobedience, and the weather. You can't draw a direct correlation with that and uh, the presence or absence of ravenous uh, animals because 
we don't live in a closed universe. We live in an open universe, and God governs these things. That's the weakness in modern environmentalism is that they treat the universe as a closed system. And it always surprises them, and their computer models don't work out because they don't take into account the fact that God rules in the affairs of men. So I was sent this email this morning, and here's uh, one of the pictures. This is a pack of, of gray wolves in the, I think it's pronounced, Waipa area in Idaho. Each one of these wolves eats 24 elk a year. And this group alone will consume over 600 elk. That doesn't account for any of the hunting or sport kills or anything like this. Now, you don't really get a good sense of how large these animals are in that picture, but you do in these pictures. These are enormous beasts. They're huge. They weigh 200 pounds or more. And they're... uh, um, and the Canadian gray wolf, according to uh, this article, says that for every animal they kill to eat, they will kill about three more just for the fun of it. It's called sport reflex killing or lustful killing. And that uh, goes on to say that they call these federal, not feral. I'm not mispronouncing it or misreading it. They call them federal wolves because the federal government reintroduced them into states like Idaho and Montana because in all of their wisdom they want to control the environment, which they can't. Basically what they're doing is they're, they're bringing these different forms of judgment uh, uh, upon us, and now they, it's a major problem in Idaho and Montana and uh, uh, probably uh, some in Wyoming because they have uh, the, the situation has become out of control and it's now an emergency Uh, an emergency situation up there. So in all of our wisdom, when we deny God and God's involvement in the universe, all we do is bring upon uh, judgment on ourselves. Okay, let me advance beyond our review from last time. And I'm going to start this evening. We want to look at the land covenant. Sometimes in, in older dispensational writing, it was called the Palestinian, uh, the Palestinian covenant. And, oh, my, did I do that? I did. I pr- no, I'm okay. I thought I printed out the, grabbed the wrong set of notes when I left the house. I'm okay. This is called the Land Covenant. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 30, so I want you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy um, 30. Excuse me, Deuteronomy 29. 29.1. Covers Deuteronomy 29 down to Deuteronomy 30, uh, verse 20 is where this is is uh, laid out. Now, in Deuteronomy 28, we have the parallel to Leviticus 26. That's the list of the of the blessings and the cursings, and it's stated again to some degree in uh, chapter 29 of Deuteronomy. And at the very beginning of this chapter, we read, "These are the words of the covenant." which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab. Now, Moab is located uh, today, it would be part of the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. It's on the Transjordan, the east side of the Jordan River. 
It's the territory that the Israelites, uh, where they stopped before they entered into the land that God had promised them in terms of the of the conquest. So this isn't a, a covenant that's given when they first came out of Egypt. It's distinct. It's state. It's in terms of its location. Uh, it was made in the land of Moab, and then the next clause really clarifies it, saying besides. And that word means in addition to the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Horeb is another uh, word, another name for Mount Sinai. So this is a an additional covenant. It's not the same covenant as the covenant of Mount Sinai. And this is a covenant that focuses on the land itself. The covenant itself is made between God, who's the party of the first part, as an unconditional covenant, and uh, the nation, uh, the nation Israel, and this is seen in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-nine. Uh, we'll look at verses uh, ten uh, through through fifteen, and I want to. Okay, put. We've got a lot of scripture we're going to look at this evening, and so I want to uh, set this up in, in Lagos over here. So um, it's a little easier for everybody to uh, to read it. Is that large enough? Can you read that? You need, need a little bit larger. Frank, you, you're young. You've got good eyes. You don't need to. It's the the other people that have the the uh, weak eyes. Okay, what I want to do here is I think I just want to float the panel, and of course I jumped over here, so we'll just put that back this way. Now, we'll skip down to verse 10, and God says, You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, and your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and alien who is within your camps, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water. So there's a recognition there that not all of the people that are there are, are ethnically Jews. There are those who are aliens. Now, that's a politically incorrect word now, which I think just another subtle way to attack a lot of biblical translations. Alien was a perfectly good word and had nothing to do with extraterrestrial life until about a, uh, two decades ago. The alien just refers to the non-citizen uh, within the, their camps, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today. So this is the key phrase right here, that God is the one who makes that with the Israelites. God is the one who makes the covenant. It's a unilateral covenant, a one-sided covenant. It's not a covenant that's two-sided that is based, based upon uh, mutual uh, conditions. He makes that covenant, verse 13, in order that he may establish you today as a people for himself and that he may be God to you uh, just as he spoke to you and as he swore to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is connecting this covenant back to the Abrahamic covenant as an expansion of what was in the Abrahamic covenant. In verse 14, he says, Now not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God 
and with those who are not with us here today, in other words, future generations. So they were standing there as representatives of all of the future generations of the descendants of Abraham, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, then we're going to look at the provisions in the next section. The first provision is that, uh, as identified in Deuteronomy 29, 2, down through 30, verse 1, Israel would be scattered for disobedience, uh, suffering, sickness, death, and they're taken out of the land. If they're disobedient, they'll encounter all of these various curses that are listed there in this chapter. Ultimately, though, where the promise and the hope is laid out that they would repent. They would turn back to God. Verse 2 uh, of chapter 30 states, uh, in verse 1, God says, It shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. So it's a turning to God. That's a key word we've studied many times, indicating a turning away from the idols and turning to God in obedience, which is the second uh, phrase. Obey his voice according to all that I command you, today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord will, Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So there's a promise at the end that they'll disobey God. God will remove them from the land, and then he will restore them to the land when they turn back to God. This is when, uh, at the time when the Messiah comes, at the second coming uh, of, of Jesus. And then fourth provision from verse 4 is we see that Israel be regathered for a final restoration to to the land. So this is the the future blessing. Uh, But it's conditioned upon their spiritual turning back to God. I think I told you before, uh, last year, the year before, I had a chance to go to uh, another church here in town. I was invited, and the, the speaker was a Rabbi Zadok. He is a uh, brother to the owner of uh, Zadok Jewelry here in town. Some of you uh, are familiar with that uh, establishment down in the Galleria area. And he's a rabbi in Israel, and he has a store over there and does a number of other things. But he preached on this passage. What was fascinating was he put the Hebrew and English up on the overhead like I do. I've never seen anybody else do that. Uh, He put the Hebrew and the uh, English up on the screen, and he went through, and he's using this as a rationale for, for showing that the current return of the Jews to the land is this return. It's not. This is a return when the Messiah comes back and a return. And he just skipped verse 2. He just, verses 1 and 2, he just completely skipped it. He went through the end of chapter 29, skips 31 and 2, and just kept right on rolling uh, with, with verse 3, and saying that verse 3 was this current return that we're witnessing of Jews, Jews to the land. So that's how they handle some things. It's always easy to handle Scripture if you can ignore portions of it. 
The fifth provision is that Israel will possess and enjoy the land. Verse 5, then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper and multiply you more than your father. So it's going to be a time of incredible blessing and prosperity when the Lord returns. They will be regenerated in verse 6, and they will remain a saved nation during the millennial kingdom. Notice verse 6 says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Now, that's not literal. You don't go literally in and circumcise or cut something literally off of the heart. It refers to a separation in terms of the removal of sin. It's used that same way uh, in the Old Testament. It refers to a separation of sin. It's not a removal completely of the sin nature because during the millennial kingdom they will have children, they will have sin natures. But their heart will be circumcised and... Uh, which has to do with the de- defeat of the power of the sin nature. Uh, the term circumcision of your heart is used in the New Testament as a parallel to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not saying here that this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it's similar in that it overpowers the tyranny uh, of the sin nature, and that will be part of the spiritual life in the church age, and they will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, this is a key verse to remember. It's not, it doesn't identify this time as the new covenant, but that language of circumcising their heart and loving their Lord, the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, that they may live is language that we'll see later on this evening that is part of the new covenant. That's the characteristic of the spiritual life identified by these new covenant passages that we'll get to, uh, uh, later on in Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and, and Ezekiel. Seventh point is Israel's enemies will be judged. In verse 7, the Lord your God will put all those curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted. And again, the reiteration of the point in verse 8, that they will, in, they will be obedient and they will enjoy all of the blessings that God has promised them in the past. Verse 8 says, You will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock and in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. Verse 10, If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So there's a, a condition for experiencing this, but the covenant itself is unconditional and eternal. But to enjoy the blessings of the covenant, there is a spiritual condition, which we'll see is resolved by the new covenant. The importance of the land covenant is that, first of all, it reaffirms Israel's title deed to the land in spite of disobedience. One of the arguments you'll hear today from some Christians is that Israel, that the, the presence of Jews in the land of Israel today is really not significant or not important because they're back in the land, but they're still apostate. They haven't accepted Jesus as Savior. They're in spiritual rebellion, and this has no, no spiritual significance. And so we don't really need to worry about blessing Israel. It's a backdoor anti-Semitism. The problem with that is even in the Old Testament when Israel was at its spiritual worst, when they were 
they were immolating their infants in uh, fiery on fiery altars, even uh, when they were burning them in worship to, to Moloch. Uh, those who came along, both the Assyrians and the Babylonians, caved into anti-Semitism, and God judged those nations. And we don't see too many Assyrians and Babylonians running around, uh, running around today. God judged them historically. And so um, the principle of blessing Israel is not conditioned upon their spiritual condition. It's based upon the fact that they are God's chosen people, and so the Abrahamic promise is still in effect. second thing that we see from the land covenant is that it shows that the conditional Mosaic covenant doesn't nullify or supersede the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. Okay, the new covenant still promises a land and says they'll be permanently in the land, and it's not. Um, it means that the the Mosaic covenant, when it came in, doesn't nullify or replace the old covenant. Now, one of the reasons that's important, as we look at these three covenants that come together, the the uh, land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, uh, they all uh, are of course, after the Mosaic Covenant. And there are some people who get the idea that the New Covenant replaces everything previous, including the um, including the Abrahamic Covenant. I mentioned that somebody did ask me a question similar to that the last time. Then I had another question or comment from uh, a guy in um, uh, Paul named Paul up in the... Uh, Pittsburgh area, and he said, uh, I've had the sad opportunity of some covenant theology acquaintances twisting, and he cites Jeremiah 31, 31, and 32, but the same thing could apply here. And then he quoted that, and he says, um, what they come up with is the idea, using their uh, allegorical hermeneutics, they say it's, uh, they argue that when God said a new covenant, with Israel, he really means that they are now going to be uh, that church age, the church age believers re- replace uh, old Israel, so that old Israel is replaced with the uh, with spiritual Israel. And then he said, "I argued that it means new, as in an additional covenant, or in addition to um, that um, that we're not replacing them." And, and actually, the new covenant replaces the old covenant. It doesn't replace Israel. It doesn't replace the, the Abrahamic covenant, which is still in effect. And the new covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the land covenant are still in effect. The only thing that the new covenant replaces is the, is the Mosaic covenant, which was designed, designed to be temporary, which is the thrust of Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 8, which we'll look at a little later on. A third thing is that it amplifies for us the land promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15 and 17, and that God hasn't changed his mind. It's still in effect. He said it was an everlasting covenant then, and it's still an everlasting covenant. Now, this is uh, confirmed in an Old Testament passage in Ezekiel uh, chapter 16. Now, we're going to be in that territory for a while tonight, so you might want to turn in your Bibles over to Ezekiel chapter 16. This is one of the longest chapters in Ezekiel. I'm going to pop it up here 
on the screen using uh, using Lagos. And we're not going to go through the whole uh, chapter because if you look to the end of the chapter, there are 63 verses in Ezekiel chapter 16, and we don't have enough time to go through this verse by verse. But I want to give you just a basic outline, and you can use that to go through and read the chapter for yourself. In the first seven verses, God states his clear love for Israel, and it uses the analogy of the birth of an infant, and that it, it describes from the very beginning of the, the nation's birth and uh, in the land of Canaan that God loved uh, the nation and took care of her. In verses 8 through 14, this analogy is further developed, uh, emphasizing God's choice of Israel corporately for his purposes, and that Israel as a nation is related by, to God by marriage and becomes the bride of Yahweh. So that's one analogy that is used in the Old Testament. You also have the analogy of adoption. These are just different pictures that God uses to emphasize the permanence of that relationship with, with Israel. And, and um, in these verses, the Mosaic Covenant is the marriage contract between God and Israel. Then the next section is rather long, lengthy. It's from verse 15 down through verse 34. And this describes Israel as the wife of Yahweh is now unfaithful and is the adulteress and is unfaithful to her husband. Nevertheless, uh, God continues to be faithful to Israel and doesn't uh, kick her out. And then in verses 35 to 52, we see that there are various punishments that are brought upon Israel, including their worldwide scattering in the diaspora. And then in verses 53 to 63, we're told that this dispersion is not permanent. It's not, but there's going to be a future time when they will be regathered and restored, and this is on the basis of the land covenant. Uh, in verse 58, we read, For you have paid for your lewdness and your abominations. And that's a reference to their spiritual apostasy. And then verse 60, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Now, I think that's making a, uh, a connection between the covenant in their youth, which is the Abrahamic covenant, which, of course, includes the land promise and the future new covenant. What we see is that when the new covenant comes into effect, in, in looking at these, these three covenants, the, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, when we look at the new covenant, we'll see that when it comes into effect, it's at the same time that the Davidic covenant is fulfilled and a Davidic king is put on the throne in Jerusalem, and the... Jews return to the land in obedience to God and at the time of, of the full restoration uh, to the land that God promised, which means we can't be living in any way, shape, or form in a time of the new covenant because we don't have a descendant of Jesus 
I mean, a descendant of David on the throne in Jerusalem, and the Jews haven't been restored to the land. Now, people say, wait a minute, we got a New Testament. The New Testament's called the New Testament. That's just another form of saying the New Covenant. Well, we'll we'll get to that uh, as we go through this, but that's where we're driving. We have to see the how the Bible connects and intertwines these three aspects that, that have their root back in the uh, Abrahamic co- covenant. So this is the confirmation passage later on. And the other thing I'm pointing out here is that you don't just have passages where the covenants are given or described, but they're reconfirmed subsequently in Scripture so that you can't just read the Old Testament in isolation. You have to connect the parts together. You can't just come in and say, oh, I'm going to read these five chapters out of Deuteronomy today and a couple of chapters out of Jeremiah and a couple of chapters out of Acts and then I've done my daily Bible reading because you lose the fact that there are these internal threads that run through Scripture connecting it together. And this is one reason that a lot of Christians get uh, get in trouble when they start talking or hearing some arguments against the Bible from unbelievers is they don't really know their Bible as an interconnected whole. They don't spend time reading it, so they're not familiar enough with it, and they haven't worked it through. That was That's the brilliant... Uh, aspect of, of Charlie Clough's framework series is it treats the whole uh, scripture as as in this interconnected and interdependent manner where you see that if you read uh, in one section, it is reaffirmed and strengthened by things that are said in other sections of the um, of the Old Testament. And the Bible cannot just be chopped up and then uh, this is sort of the, the old saying that uh, united we stand, divided we fall. What happens with the, the liberal methodology is to divide the Scripture and attack it piecemeal, and, uh, and because Christians don't know how these things interconnect, they just, they just lose their faith in the, in the Scripture. But once you see it as, as a connected whole, then you don't really have the, these problems. So uh, the last thing I want to say about about the um, uh, uh, the land covenant is in terms of its status, it's unconditional, and all of chapter 29 and has been fulfilled in terms of the scattering down through Deuteronomy 31. We're waiting on the last part to be fulfilled, which has to do with their repentance and turning back, uh, turning back to God. So that's the final part of that covenant. Now, the second covenant we're going to look at tonight is the Davidic covenant. This is the covenant that God entered into with uh, with uh, David in terms of the future leadership of the nation. So the land covenant, in order to have a nation, what do you have to have? You have to have a people. You have to have a territory where the nation exists, and you have to have a ruler. Uh, and so what we have here is uh, the ruler, the land covenant takes place of the location, and then the new covenant is going to define the kind of people that will be part of that kingdom. So we have the scripture for the Davidic covenant, uh, two basic passages, 2 Samuel seven eleven through 14, and that emphasizes more the fulfillment of the covenant through Solomon, uh, David's immediate uh, seed, and then First Chronicles seventeen ten through fourteen, which looks a little more at the long term fulfillment 
in David's uh, uh, greater son, uh, the Messiah. In terms of the persons in the covenant, you have God on the one hand entering into a unilateral covenant, an unconditional covenant with with David. And I want to look at the uh, passage in Second Samuel. Put it up here. Second Samuel seven fourteen. And just read through this, uh, 14 through 17, or excuse me, 11 through through 14. Um, God reminds David of how he has been faithful uh, to him and taken care of him. Starting verse 8, he says, Now therefore thus shall you say to my servant David, uh, Thus says the Lord of, of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. So this is a reminder to David of how God has uh, raised him to his current position, how God has provided for him and blessed him. God says in verse 9, I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies uh, from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Now, what does that remind you of? It should take you back to the covenant that God made with Abraham where God promised Abraham that he would make his name great. And that was in contrast to what happened at the Tower of Babel where the people gathered together in opposition to God in order to make their name great. You see how you connect the dots and tie the threads together to show that the Bible is an interconnected whole. There is a purpose here. God is going to make great those whom he wills to make great and it's going to be based on their humility and dependence upon him and his grace, uh, his grace toward them. Then we read in verse 10, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. What is that? That's the land covenant. He, he t- connects the, sea, the, the covenant he's getting ready to make with David to the promise of the, uh, the, promise of the, of the seed. And he says, uh, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. So this is the beginning of the promise. God will make him a house. This is a re- This doesn't mean God is going to um, build David a nice palace. It actually alludes to the fact that previously, in the previous chapter, David had expressed his desire to build a temple for God. And God is saying, no, it's not going to be your role to build a temple for me. Instead, I'm going to build you a house. It's a play on the words. God is going to build David a house, meaning a dynasty. He says in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Notice God is the one who's enforcing and bringing into effect the covenant, not not David. It's it's a one-sided covenant initiated by God. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. This is referring to Solomon. Solomon will build that temple, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom uh, forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. He's still talking about Solomon. That's why I pointed out, 2 Samuel 7 focuses more on its immediate fulfillment through Samuel, I mean through Solomon, and then the Chronicles passage deals with the uh, ultimate fulfillment in uh, in Jesus Christ, in the passage in 1 Chronicles 17.10. Verse 14 says, I will be as God said, I will be his father. He shall be my son if he commits iniquity. Another clue he's talking about a human, uh, uh, a human object here at this point. I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from you before. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. So this is a promise to David that his house that is, his dynasty and his kingdom will be established forever. It's another eternal, everlasting covenant, and that your throne shall be established forever. So what God promises here in terms of the, uh, in terms of the pr- provisions... First of all, he promises a house... He promises that Solomon will be established upon David's throne, secondly. Third, he promises that Samuel will build the temple, not David, although David did all the pre-work. He laid everything out, laid out the plans, helped Solomon get everything ready to go, but it was going to be Solomon who built the temple. Fourth, the throne of Solomon's temple would be established forever. That's that's in terms of his dynasty as well from David. Uh, not that Solomon's going to be forever, but the throne of the kingdom would be forever. Fifth, provision Solomon would be punished for disobedience, but God's covenant love would not be removed from him. God would be faithful to his covenant even though Solomon would be disobedient or unfaithful. Sixth, in First Chronicles 17, 10 through 14, the emphasis is on the Messiah his throne, his house, and his kingdom will be established forever. That's the long-term uh, application of the Davidic covenant. So four eternal things are promised. An eternal house, which means an eternal dynasty, the Davidic dynasty. And that, if you think about it, the, if, if it's coming physically through the seed of David, can a human being be eternal? No. So the only way that you can have etern- an eternal House is if you have an eternal succession, a never-ending succession of descendants, or if one of those descendants is himself eternal. So embedded within the Davidic covenant in this concept of an eternal fulfillment is the implication that that it's not just going to be a human being that fulfills the covenant, but a, a human being who is also God who himself will be eternal. So four eternal things are promised, an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, and an eternal descendant. In terms of confirmation, the Davidic covenant is confirmed in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and also in Psalm 89. If you read through Psalm 89, it's a great psalm, and the whole psalm is a meditation on the Davidic covenant, this promise that God has made uh, guaranteeing an eternal dynasty uh, to David. 
So take some time and read through, uh, read through those passages. Second thing that we see, that we learn later on in Jeremiah 33, which we'll look at in a minute, that the provisions of the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled. God promises that he will fulfill them even though some of David's descendants are unworthy and disobedient and apostate. Nevertheless, God is still going to ultimately fulfill those, those promises. Let's look at uh, Jeremiah 33. See, the fun part of this is you get to wander around the Bible. Now, when, you're, when I'm doing this, you should be writing notes in your margin of your Bible connecting these passages together. So back there with 2 Samuel 7.11, you should put in the margin uh, to, to see uh, Jeremiah chapter 33, 14-26. You should have 2 Samuel 23 and Psalm 89 uh, also listed there in your notes in, in the margins there of your Bible. But in... Uh, Jeremiah 33, we switch over here to Jeremiah 33. Long chapter, but an important, important chapter. God comes along and says, makes this promise to, to the nation at the time. Verse, talking to Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus says the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it to establish it. Yahweh is his name. And then he gives Jeremiah a promise related to prayer. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Notice how God identifies himself specifically as the God of Israel concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword. So this is written while the armies of Babylon are outside the walls of Jerusalem seeking to destroy them. And God says they, they come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with a dead body. So they've done all this fortification to fight the, uh, the Chaldeans. And God says, in my fury, because of all their wickedness, I've hidden my face from this city. So they're, they're going down because of divine discipline. Verse 6, he says, behold, I will bring its health. I will bring it health and healing. This is future. So God's bringing judgment, but there's also this promise of future blessing and a hope. God says, I will bring it. Verse 6 shifts from the present circumstances to the future restoration and hope. I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. That's in verse Verse six. Okay, I will heal. Uh, and in verse seven, I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return. So this is focusing on the future restoration of the nation. I will cause them to return, and will rebuild those places as at the first. I will cleanse them with all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. Has that happened yet? No. 
This is yet future. There has not been this cleansing of the whole nation uh, yet. Verse 9 says, Then it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and an honor before all the nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They, that is the nation, shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I, uh, that I provide for it. And then if you, we skip down to verse 15, this connects it to David. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. This, it, it, he, the, the analogy is used in other passages that the house of David or the, or, uh, refers to his father Jesse as a stump. You've cut down the tree. There's nothing left but a stump. Now, all of a sudden, something new is going to grow out of this. Even though the, the house of David seems to have been cut off in the future, it's destroyed in 586, there will be a branch that grows out of this stump of, De- of Jesse. Now, that's in another passage in Isaiah, but it picks up this same idea here. I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those, those days... Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely, and this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord our righteousness. This is a future fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. For thus, thus says the Lord God, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Nor shall the priests and Levites lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me. Now, when we get into um, the millennial kingdom later on, we're going to see that there will be a restoration of sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. Now, that bothers a lot of non-dispensationalists, but you've got a real problem if you're going to interpret Scripture literally when you come to Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, which deals with the future temple that's built, that's a clear description of a restored priesthood and a restored sacrifices. But the sacrifices there are not identical to the Levitical sacrifices. There are differences, and uh, that caused quite a bit of problems to the rabbis trying to reconcile Ezekiel with Leviticus because they, they wanted them to, uh, to to blend together, and they're different because... In the future millennial kingdom, those sacrifices are not related to depicting salvation. They're related to the cleansing of the priests in ritual. We'll get into all of that when we get there. But I just want you to point out here that in verse 18 of Jeremiah 33, it's focusing on this future time when the Davidic promise is fulfilled there's a restoration of those sacrifices. And how long will this go on? Verse 20, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day or night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne or with the Levites of priests my, my minister. So what he's saying is, just as it's impossible for the sun and moon not to do their thing, uh, it's impossible for me to break my uh, break my covenant, and so Jeremiah uh, thirty three fourteen down through twenty six uh, reinforces that covenant. Verse twenty five comes back to that same imagery: If my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant. Notice Jacob 
That's Abrahamic covenant. So in that verse, he's connecting the promise to Jacob with the promise to David. And that uh, this, and he, then he says, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to return, and I will have mercy on them. So this is tied to that return, which is what Deuteronomy talked about uh, in Deuteronomy chapter uh, chapter 30. So these are the passages that confirm what was stated earlier in the Davidic covenant. Uh, the last part of this, it deals with the extent of the covenant, Looked at the confirmations and um, other passages, which I'll look at in a minute. Um, the extent of the covenants forever and everlasting, according to Revelation 20, as well as Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. That's the Messianic passage uh, related to the fact that, that uh, the Messiah will be born son of David, and he will be called the everlasting king. Uh, and Isaiah eleven eleven. Now, I don't have time because it's already 8.30 to go into Isaiah eleven 11. We'll look at that when we get to the new covenant next time in terms of the second, uh, rest, uh, the two restorations of Israel. But we see that the extent of this covenant, it's forever and everlasting, point one and point two, the house of David, as I pointed out, is reduced to a stump. It's impoverished. It becomes nothing, but God will restore it. And this is seen in passages like the one I just stated. I just had it up here. Here we go. Jeremiah 23.5 and 23.6. Now, we just read something similar to this in Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 23.5, we read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. This is a common image of the Davidic Messiah. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In verse 6, in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord of righteousness. That is almost identical to what is stated there in, in Jeremiah 33 uh, 15 to 16. And then Jeremiah 30, verse 8, For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck, will burst your bonds, foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. That's not a reference to the Messiah. That's a reference to the resurrected David who will reign over uh, Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So this is, again, uh, an allusion to even resurrection. Now, next time, we'll come back and start with the new covenant. And there's a lot to cover on the new covenant. We'll get into that uh, next week. Were there any questions? Any Anybody pop up with anything? Go ahead while we're here. This is from Nina in New York. Under the Old Testament monarchy, each king was instructed to make a copy of the law for himself. Do we know which portion of the Pentateuch that would have been have comprised of? She, probably the whole five books of Moses. 
Okay, and then she goes on, what about when the book of the law was found and read to King Hosea, what, uh, what would that have consisted of? The Mosaic law was, con- uh, was the constitution for the nation, Israel, believer and unbeliever alike, but how could anyone but a believer be expected not to violate the first commandment? Well, in, in terms of the, with, with Josiah, when they re- re- rediscovered the law, that was primarily Deuteronomy. And, and the law had been lost, I mean, for a couple of generations, for at least a generation, for a couple of decades or more, nobody knew the law, according to the, the passage there in Kings. So, um, but that was, the, even unbelievers were expected to obey the law. It wasn't just because you had unbelievers in, in the nation. That's part of the distinction between the spirituality of the church age and that in the Old Testament, because they're all treated as being able to understand the law. Mike, did you have a question? Yes. Uh, early, early in your talk, you were, you were referring to the fact that the Mosaic covenant, covenant was only made with the Jewish people, with Israel. Right. The scripture verse that you were um, referring to um, made mention of the aliens among you, right? yeah. and, and, and those that chop your wood and, 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 and so forth and so on. But the covenant was being made with all of them. So were those aliens at that point embraced as Israel? Were they? They were okay. You, you, they, they're not viewed as foreigners. They're viewed as as Gentiles who have come in and become part of of Israel, like like Ruth, yeah, right. like like Ruth. So they would. But the covenant is made with Israel. When you go through the uh, prophets. And the prophets list a lot of condemnations for all the all the different nations. You read through Isaiah, and there's you read the headings in your study Bible, and there's the judgment on Babylon, the judgment on Edom, and the judgment on Moab, and the judgment on Phoenicia, and on and on and on. And I did this as part of a course years ago, and go through, and I listed all of the things for which Gentiles are condemned. They're never condemned for anything that's unique to the Mosaic Law. Uh, the Jews are condemned for not observing the Sabbath, not observing the sabbatical year, all these other things that are distinct to the Mosaic Law. But Gentiles are condemned for that which is related to the Noahic Covenant or the Creation Covenant, and that is idolatry, and, th- and that's it. So the point is that, that the Mosaic Covenant is made with the House of Israel and the House of Judah. There were those that lived in Israel, and they were, you know, some were uh, becoming proselytes, various stages, those would have been considered aliens until they uh, com- completely converted, which would be indicated for the males with, with circumcision. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to uh, reflect upon, uh, upon your word and your plan and your promises to Israel that these are eternal and everlasting and that even though Israel may be apostate today, may not be trusting in Jesus as Messiah, nevertheless, uh, you are still faithful to them. You are you will fulfill your promises to them. And we as Christians have a responsibility to continue to bless uh, the Jew, Jewish people and Israel and to treat them in grace uh, because they are your chosen people. Father, we pray that you would help us as we study through these things and think about it, read through these passages in Scripture to see these distinctions on how you treat and deal with Israelites in the Old Testament versus church-age believers today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.